Oh boy, you picked a good episode to listen to today. If there's any company that can create a massive controversy over a video editing program, it's frickin' Apple. Now, this wasn't just any old software update, this was a major rewrite with many new features, but it left many people feeling... Well, let's just say emotional. This story actually got so big that a documentary was made about it. And we'll talk about all that stuff and more today in this special episode of Apple Keynote Chronicles. Apple Keynote Chronicles is sponsored by Linode. Simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. To put it simply, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Hey guys, how are you all doing? If you're new here, welcome. My name is Crazy Ken, and welcome back to Apple Keynote Chronicles. And it's a special episode today because it's the 10th anniversary of Apple's Final Cut Pro 10 video editing software. And we're taking a brief break from our Steve Jobs Apple 90s timeline, and we're jumping to 2011 because a special Apple event happened at the Super Meet in Las Vegas, and we're gonna be talking about that today. But don't worry, we'll be resuming our regular timeline later. And I am joined here today not by my normal co-host Brad, but my other friend Brad. All of my friends are named Brad, <laughs> who, who is the creator of the Off the Tracks documentary. Brad, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's great to be here, Ken. Yeah, absolutely. So I know uh, we've known each other for a couple years, and we did a live show about a year ago about Final Cut Pro 10. But for the listeners that don't know you, uh, feel free to introduce yourself. Yeah, uh, my name is Brad Olson. I am a filmmaker. I've been making videos since the late 90s. Started out on Adobe Premiere as a kid. Maybe not a totally legal version of Adobe Premiere, <laughs> um, <laughs> as many <laughs> you know, did. But then I was introduced to this amazing thing called the Avid when I did an internship. I was 16 years old. And hey, video actually played back and I can edit with it. It was yeah. awesome. <laughs> Uh, but then there was a problem, which was that the, the thing cost like 80 grand and <laughs> my heart sank because I didn't know how at 16 with no job and just an internship, how I'd ever be able to afford that. No way. Until a friend came over with an iBook G3 and Final Cut Pro running on it. And I saw the future right there. I was like, hey, Final Cut is awesome. This is something I can actually hope to use. And over the years, that uh, software got more and more popular. And then this event that we're here to talk about happened. But I kind of built a career in those early days on, on Final Cut Classic, and as we call it, or Legacy, or mm -hmm. whatever, whatever you want to call it. And then when the transition happened, I made the crazy move to Final Cut Pro 10. I've cut about a dozen independent feature films. Nice. My documentary and countless other projects on Final Cut and have been out there for the last decade advocating for it. Even though in those mm -hmm. early days, there was very, very few people that... Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the professional video market, right. there were very few people who were interested in using it and they all looked at me like I was crazy. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, I was a day one user as well of Final Cut Pro 10, and I, I know we'll be talking a lot more about that kind of stuff later today as well. I, I guess you could say I was pretty crazy too, but it's in my name, you know, Crazy Ken, so it works. So just a little bit of background for anyone who's listening who doesn't know what the software is we're talking about. Final Cut Pro is Apple's professional video editing software, and a big thing it did 
for the industry was, well, it, it kind of it liberated this technology to people who didn't have $80,000 to buy these expensive hardware solutions to edit video on computers. It was just this, like, what was it, like a $999 program, right? You put it on your Mac, you know, you plug in your Firewire camera, and you can edit your videos right there on, like you said, at a freaking iBook G3 or whatever. <laughs> so that was really cool. And then in 2011, Apple rewrote it. So, like, there's this dedicated, loyal fan base, and, you know, now there's this rewrite and a lot of changes, and there were some sour reactions to it, like you said. So, and the story got kind of big. And we'll be talking about the aftermath of that today and the physical events that took place on stage during the sneak peek at the Super Meet in Las Vegas. But I think it's gonna be a good idea to just go over a brief history of the Final Cut Classic timeline. So uh, Brad, if you'd like, uh, you may take it away. <laughs> All right. I, I can chime uh, in too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we talked about Adobe Premiere. That actually was created by a guy named Randy Ubilos in the early 90s. He did the first three versions, single-handedly wrote those versions himself. Hmm. And then version four was something he did collaborate with a team on at Adobe. And then I guess that was stressful. I don't know. He, he ended up moving away to Macromedia, who was interested in developing their own video editing program. And then something kind of crazy happened, which was, you know, by 1997-ish, Apple wasn't looking so great. You know, I think if you're yep. talking about that timeline on, your, oh, on yeah. the rest of the podcast, people <laughs> might be, a f be familiar with that. But uh, Steve Jobs really wanted a video editing application for the Mac, and he saw Avid and Adobe were starting to withdraw support. So there was a very dedicated professional video editing community that loved being on Mac. And in 1999, when Final Cut Pro, which was previously called Key Grip at Macromedia, uh, when that was being released or announced to NAB, Avid made a critical error, which is they said they were no longer going to support the Mac. <laughs> which drove all these people over to this Apple booth at, yep. at NAB, which is the National Association Broadcasters Convention in Vegas. And it gave it a, a really good kind of early start in 1999. Of course, it was never really positioned at that time to overtake Hollywood editors, but it fit this niche between somebody cutting their home videos and that top high end. There was mm -hmm. kind of this middle area of television and documentary right. filmmakers, corporate video, weddings, and all of that. And Steve Jobs had this incredible vision of DV, you know, Firewire, digital video, and the Mac. And of course we had iMovie, but Final Cut Pro was the more professional video editing software. So that all started out really mm -hmm. great. And the big moment for Final Cut Pro where it started making its way into the feature film world was with Cold Mountain, which was edited by Walter Murch. And mm. He was just really crazy. It was Final Cut Pro 3, I think. And this was 2003 that this movie was released. So he kind of forced this application to work in a Hollywood feature film environment, which it wasn't really designed to do. But that sort of blew the lid off of you know the possibilities and Apple started really doubling down. They made Final Cut Pro HD. They made Final Cut Studio. They added color and soundtrack pro and... Mm -hmm motion to the mix so it was this fully featured suite of apps you could burn your dvds with dvd studio pro then there was all these other little tools and great things about final cut studio i'd say around 2005 to 2007 it really felt like apple cared about the video professional and they started taking ground from avid as well which oh, was man. probably scary for avid <laughs> 
Yeah. Apple also had Shake, which wasn't part of Final Cut Studio, but it was this really high-end compositing program that they bought. And they took the licenses were like $40,000 and they brought it down to like $500. But then when they brought the price down, they said, oh, and by the way, we're end of life Shake. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Which people are still upset about to this day oh, in the man. visual effects industry. And... That that put Final Cut Pro into question. Like, what is Apple's loyalty to Final Cut Pro? There was also a really small thing that happened in 2007 for Apple. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it was, you know, an announcement of a new device that maybe changed the company's direction. Oh, yeah, the, the Newton. That's right. The, no. Oh, yeah. The, <laughs> the yeah, that, the, the I thing. That was totally the I, the I Newton. Yeah, I, I think we're talking about that, uh, that, that uh, cell phone thing. Yeah, the one that Steve Ballmer laughed oh, at yeah. and said, no one's going to pay $500 for a phone. To be fair, he did say it could sell well, you know. He did say it could. <laughs> yeah, after he made a fool of himself. That's true, that's true. Yeah, the it's iPhone, slight, big deal. Slight back home. I iPhone really changed, uh, I think, a lot about Apple. It blew the company up. I mean, I shouldn't say think. We know it did. Yeah. And it really changed the whole company as far as the profit margins and where the money was at. And I think a lot of focus shifted at Apple as far as priorities. And um, and and it felt like from somebody on the outside that maybe video professionals wasn't their priority anymore. Mm. Which was a little sad, but it felt that way because then in 2009, when they rolled out Final Cut Pro 7, there was hardly any love put into that release. There was hardly any features. They like yeah. gave us colored tabs and markers. It was like the <laughs> main thing I remember. It was such a ridiculous... And they, they lowered the price and it wasn't 64-bit, which was really odd that they... that. By that point in 2009, it felt like everybody's switching over to 64-bit architecture. Why is mm. Final Cut Pro not? And we would run into these memory limitations. It would say, oh, you've used your four gigs of RAM. All four gigs. That's all we had. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Boom. And you can't do anything more. It's like, Pretty oh, much. thanks, Final Cut. <laughs> so I think that that's important context to be aware of before you get into what happened in 2011. Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of people were wondering if Apple still cared or if they only cared about iPhones and then the iPad came out. And they uh, were looking to see, well, what are they going to do? So then we get to 2011. I don't know. Did I cover everything? Is there any interesting tidbits? <laughs> that sounds perfect. I'm going to throw in my little tidbit about iMovie because I remember when like the newer versions of iMovie were coming out, it was having features that weren't in Final Cut Pro. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. I'm jealous now. Like the consumer Apple video editor has, you know, built-in stabilization and all this cool skimming and film strip view stuff. And I, but to be honest, my young brain, like I wasn't really too much of a techie back then. I wasn't even thinking about the future and thinking, oh, this could be the next Final Cut. I wasn't thinking that. I was just salty that I didn't have those features in Final Cut, but all the iMovie kids had it. Um, but that was the same as we're going to find out later. You know, Randy Ubelos, who was the chief architect on the new version of Final Cut, was also doing this iMovie stuff. I, I just rewatched your documentary earlier. Randy was working on something like a program to go along with Final Cut, right? And it had all this cool stuff. And Steve was like, that's the next iMovie. And that's what ended up happening before Final Cut Pro 10, right? Yeah. So there, you can actually find the video online too of, of Steve Jobs. I, I put a video up on YouTube that goes into that a little bit more where it shows a clip from Steve Jobs and then my interview with Randy, mm -hmm. where they talk about this story of 
Randy went on a vacation. He and his husband were filming underwater with like an HDV camera and a housing. And they had all this footage of, of underwater and some sharks occasionally. Yep. So as he scrubs through in Final Cut Pro, he's opening up a clip and he scrubs through and he goes, blue, blue, blue shark, blue, <laughs> blue, blue shark. So it's, he found it was this very tedious thing to like load up each clip and drag the scrubber. So he had this idea of what if you had film strips and what if you could just skim along them and it would show you the frames. Mm-hmm. So he had someone mock it up as far as the, the UI. He did obviously the, some of the code for that and they called it Rough Cut and they presented it to Steve Jobs and Steve Jobs saw it and said, that's iMovie. Yeah. Because we need a new iMovie. And mm-hmm. I saw that and I heard that story and I had a similar reaction to you. So by this point, I was starting my kind of professional, I was still in college, but I was starting my professional career in video. And I was definitely jealous of this idea that Final Cut wasn't good enough. I mean, come on, it's Final Cut Pro. Yeah, <laughs> right? Why? What do you mean it's not good enough to do your project on? But then I too found myself like my parents would want to do a video for my grandparents' anniversary or something. And they would have tons of photos and... I realized it's just so much easier with the Ken Burns effect and the magnetism of moving things around to do this in iMovie. Mm. So I, that's the only time I was really dabbling in iMovie, but I did find it was faster at certain things than Final Cut Pro. Yeah. That was definitely one of them. It was just so easy to like click and zoom in on an area and go to the next picture or like, oh, I want to swap the order. And it was just really fast at swapping things around. Whereas, you know, Final Cut seven you know it's a transitions and everything it was just really clunky to try to like copy and paste and open up the timeline so i start feeling like apple's got to do something new and different even when i saw the ipad release we are now getting rumors about will final cut pro come to the ipad Mm -hmm. i was thinking what would that look like back in 2009 (laughs) yeah yeah when the ipad was announced that was right 2009 2010 2010 yeah early 2010 yeah uh but i was starting to imagine what that might look like back then so i was looking at the future everybody else was wondering what is apple doing it looks like they're abandoning professionals and i think the stage is set for what came next now oh yeah absolutely there is one more thing as steve jobs would say that i wanted to mention that email there was that email in like 2010 And Steve Jobs replied to it. You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, what was the guy's name? Alex J. It's Alex, I think. Yeah, it was Alex something. Alex J something, okay. yeah. There was an email from a guy, I think, named Alex J. He asked Steve Jobs what was going on with Final Cut. Or does Apple just, you know, do you care about the professional market or just iPhones and iPads? And Steve Jobs actually emailed him back and said that the next release will be awesome. Mm. There was a big line. So oh, it was yeah. like, we got something. I remember there being rumors around that time. And yeah, it was just building that sort of excitement of, okay, what, what are you going to do? Steve Jobs mm-hmm. says it's awesome. It better be awesome. And <laughs> it's hard to think of now with how big Apple is. And does Tim Cook, you know, really, is he aware of pro apps? But Steve Jobs at that time was involved in every little thing Apple did. And he was definitely aware of and looking at what the pro apps team was doing. Mm-hmm. The rumor I've heard is that he was the one who said, don't just make Final Cut 64-bit rethink video editing. Like he gave that mandate to the pro apps team. Huh. And that got them thinking about what's happening. People are shooting on memory cards. People are shooting more footage than before with digital video. You know, film and tape was 
pricier than just shooting on a memory card. So what types of tools will people need in the future? H.264 was becoming a thing and it did not play well in Final Cut 7, even though Final Cut 7 said it supported H.264. That was a lie. (laughs) So, I mean, you had to transcode. It wouldn't play back. So there was these areas where Final Cut was clunky and old and wasn't updated. And there were ways to kind of work with media differently. So that I think a lot of that was the conversation around how do we reinvent or rethink editing. Mm -hmm. I agree with what you said earlier. I think everything is set for that fateful day, April 12th. (laughs) 2011. (laughs) So a couple weeks before that, leading up to that event, well, actually prior to that, Apple, if you remember, they pulled from events. Like they used to have a booth at NAB and they pulled from Macworld. They announced they're only doing their own events. They're not going to be at other people's expos and other people's events. That included NAB. So a couple weeks before NAB, Steve Jobs comes by and says, hey guys, uh, what are you showing off at NAB? And they're like, (laughs) well, what do you mean? We pulled out of events. Like we don't have anything prepped. He's like, oh, you got to show the next version of Final Cut Pro. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, okay. So there's this uh, Creative Pro user group that Michael Horton and Dan Berube would put on. And it had been going for a little over 10 years, I want to say, around 10 years at that point. And uh, maybe not the super meets, but the like the Creative Pro user group community Mm -hmm. been building up over a decade. And they did these super meets and they already at this point obviously had their sponsors lined up and presenters lined up and apple comes in and says hey will you guys uh let us show off final cut and they're like oh well we could probably open up a slot they're like no no no, we'll buy out all your sponsors oh my gosh because we have to you know we have to control the show it can only be us on stage so you had the final cut pro user group super meet at NAB, and it's like, what are they going to do? Not show the new Final Cut Pro? Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, their hands were tight. They really had no choice. Yeah. I'm sure that made competing editing software companies happy. Yeah. And, of course, there's just all this buzz because this was like, hey, guys, we're switching the program. Apple's now going to present. They're taking over the whole evening. And from talking to people who were there, the fire marshal had to, like, kick people out. There was too many people cramming into that room. Dude, that's just like the original Macintosh. Like, at the Flint Center, there were so many people there. They had to, like, go outside. Like, yeah. the shareholders, man, that's crazy. Apple just drums up, like, so much hype and stuff. That's that's their superpower, man. So everyone is, it's like 1,700 people packed in this hall, and Apple's got it all decked out, so it looks like a typical Apple event with their, like, nice curtains and the little simple lighting and the nice traditional Steve Jobs gradient, you know, keynote background and everything. It, it looks like a normal Apple event, but at the super meet at NAB. So Richard Townhill comes out on stage and he was the director of video applications at Apple at the time. For those who want to see the keynote later, it was not officially recorded. It was just recorded from like people in the audience. Some parts are chopped off and whatnot, but I tried to find the most complete version and I put a link to that in the show notes there. But yeah, Richard Townhill from Apple comes out on stage and people are excited. Like people are are cheering and applauding and they're really hyped up. And he comes out and says, we're going to introduce, give the sneak peek. We're going to introduce this version of Final Cut Pro that's going to be as revolutionary as the first version of Final Cut Pro. So, you know, that's a pretty bold statement. So everyone's getting excited. And he talks about, you know, the Power Mac G3 and Firewire, how you could just have your Mac.
Mac and you can plug in your camera and capture your video and edit. And you know, that was like $50,000 cheaper than competing solutions. If you wanted to edit video, you could just do it right at your desk. And one of my favorite parts was when he was talking about DV, the DV format that Final Cut was pushing. Someone in the audience was just like, yeah, <laughs> they just yelled so freaking loud. I just love that kind of energy in the room. And then he kind of just quickly goes through a few statistics, like what kind of like major broadcasters are using Final Cut Pro, ABC, BBC, CCTV, CBS, CNN, Walt Disney. He talks about how big it is in independent film, 94% customer satisfaction, and the install base in 2010 just passed 2 million. So just for context, like this is a big deal. A lot of people use it. The customer satisfaction is high and the fan base is really strong. So that's why if you make a lot of changes, you know, there might be people that are really happy and there might be some people that are like, eh, <laughs> not so happy about that. You were talking about how he's fire on the DV and how if you make changes, it might upset some people. My favorite thing from Richard's presentation, which at the time made me go, yeah, as a Final Cut fan. But then looking back, I'm like, maybe that wasn't the most diplomatic thing to do was a graph that he showed of Final Cut users and then the competition. Yeah. And it was showing that Avid <laughs> and Premiere were kind of nosediving and Final Cut Pro was getting up to like 2 million, you know, users. And made, as a Final Cut Pro person, it made me feel really excited. But yeah, maybe, maybe not the best thing to do after you stole the stage and booted them off. And now they're in the back of the room booing and hissing. Oh, gosh, I didn't even think about that. Because <laughs> even when <laughs> even when he's on stage, he's like, the competition's probably not happy that I'm showing you this. He says something like that, and like they're in a race for second place, and the graphs draw on the screen. Yeah, ooh, poking the bear. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. So then Peter Steinauer, who's the architect of Final Cut Pro, he comes out on stage. And he's like, this is the worldwide sneak peek of an all new version of Final Cut Pro. It's a brand new version, Final Cut Pro 10 with a Roman numeral X. That's what Apple did with Mac OS 10. They put a Roman numeral X on there. I guess that's their brand name for like, hey, this is all new. So it's rebuilt from the ground up, modern application on a modern foundation. And this got a crap ton of applause. It's 64 bit now, <laughs> there we go. No more four gigabyte RAM limit, but hey, if you're rewriting an application, you know, why not, like Brad was talking about earlier, rethink editing, redo the application, make it better. Don't just spend all this freaking time rewriting all the code underneath. You might as well do other things while you're in there. And the cool thing is Apple had this advantage because they weren't making cross-platform stuff. They just had to deal with the one platform and make it great. So they can make a Cocoa application. They could put in all of these Snow Leopard technologies, which was the version of Mac OS X at the time. So you could do things like core graphics and core animation and OpenCL, which took advantage of the GPU for computational tasks. Grand Central Dispatch, which utilized multi-cores in your processors more. You know, things we, especially as non-developer people, we kind of just take for granted today. But like back then, OpenCL was a newer thing. This was introduced in the Mac OS in 2009 with Snow Leopard. So it was only like two years old at the time. And all this stuff makes for a really fast application. And for those who haven't used Final Cut Pro 10, it's really fast. <laughs> That's one reason I use it. It is the speed. And uh, I love that someone from the audience, like right after Pete says it's 64-bit, there's like a guy in the audience that is like, thank you, I love you, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's something to just comment on because in making my documentary, obviously interviewed people who were there, people who were on stage. And the interesting thing was this idea that some people thought everybody was just, everybody in the audience was so excited 
and that they were all jumping up and they were so thrilled and they and it was like any you know big apple event but just for video editors Mm -hmm. and then people who were a little further back on the room saw that yeah half the audience was jumping up and clapping and applauding and calling out things the other half was like hold on you know what are we changing here what's missing am i still gonna have everything and uh is this gonna work for me as a professional because again that doubt from before was still very much in the room absolutely um yeah, I think everybody wanted to love what Apple was going to do, but there were definitely skeptical and cynical people there. Yeah, and it's a good thing that you mentioned that because a lot of this footage that you see is like the front row people. And those are probably the people that are going to be excited no matter what. And that's what you see on camera. But yeah, there are those people back there. And I get it. I'm the same way. Like anytime, like at my day job, someone comes in and they're talking about these technology changes. My brain is constantly going, wait a minute, is that going to work? For- wait, what's that going to break? <laughs> like my, I, I totally get it. I but embrace the future. That's what I got to do. But uh, my brain still sticks there. So then they waste no more time. Like they show this new user interface on the screen. It comes up on the slide, and I remember there was no live stream of this, but I was watching somebody post the pictures like on the, the Mac Rumors live feed or whatever. And I remember seeing it and my initial reaction was what a lot of people thought. I was like, wait a minute, this looks like iMovie. I was like kind of stuck at first, but the more I looked at it, the more I liked it. Because there was a look to it that was very much, if you remember that time, Apple was kind of taking things from the iPhone, which had some skew morphism stuff. Yeah, true. And they had like the crosshatch background and some things oh, yeah. in it that looked a little consumery and not like what you would expect from a professional application. Mm-hmm. I was more interested in the innovations and what it could do. I figured that some of that UA design could be ironed out, but for sure, the iMovie Pro (laughs) moniker came from that moment of just seeing it and it looks like iMovie. So that's who they're trying to get is that prosumer and everybody thinks they're you know, more than that. So even if they aren't, (laughs) they they, want to be more, they aspire to be more than that. And for those who want some visual representation of what we're talking about here. I do have a link in the show notes that will, it has some screenshots in it of what the older Final Cut Classic looked like and what Final Cut Pro 10.0 looked like. So you can just get a idea under your belt because I'm friends with some other buddies, even my uh, other co-host, Brad, he's been using Final Cut for a long time, but even he wasn't a 10.0 user. He started using it when the library system came out in 10.1, which was a big update, but that was in 2013. That was like two years later. So yeah, I got some screenshots in that link in the show notes. So during the presentation, they broke down the user interface and like the three big things they were focusing on were image quality, organization, and editing. And again, as video people now, and especially video people that weren't editing back then, you know, we take a lot of this stuff for granted, but this was kind of new at the time. So one thing they were promoting was color sync, which is something Steve Jobs first introduced at a Sabled seminar, I believe, like to get color to look the same across different displays for desktop publishing and all that stuff. Now it worked for video, like fully color managed color sync video was a, a big deal. So now that was built in and resolution independent. So like if you've got a freaking 4K timeline and you want to put SD and HD and all these different formats in there, it it worked. Like Brad was talking about earlier, transcoding H.264 and stuff like that. You didn't have to do that. You could just throw things in and it would play. So that was a big deal. And they also talked more about Grand Central Dispatch, which was that multi-core Snow Leopard technology. And I do have a little soundbite here because I love this part because 
Any person who is using Final Cut Classic just absolutely loves the, the writing video window. You know, when you go to render, it, you can't do anything else in the app and the little progress bar just chugs across the screen. But with Grand Central Dispatch, you could do background rendering. So I'm just gonna play this part, I love it here. The GPU that you've got installed in your machine to, to scale from your MacBooks all the way up to the highest end machines and render your, your work as quickly as is possible. What this means in practical terms is this dialogue that you love? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And I love it. It just disintegrates on the screen. Background rendering. Oh, man. Freaking love it. Yeah. How, mu how much of my life has been spent watching progress bars? <laughs> Dude, I know. And you know, the funny thing is I actually turn background rendering off and manually render when I need to. But I most of the time in Final Cut, I don't have to render because it just works so fast that I can play back unrendered things and it works. I'm the same way. I turn off the background rendering because it works fine. Like I rarely have any problems unless I have like a bajillion effects stacked up or something. Yeah. And if I have to render, I just select it, press my shortcut key, and then it just does it. <laughs> Content auto-analysis was another big one where it sounded really, really cool. And I hope they, with AI, they get back to it. But I turn it off because it takes too long. And it's like, I can look at the shot and see there's a person in the shot. I don't need you to analyze it to tell me that. Right, yeah. I thought the same thing. Like, it's cool that it can automatically determine, like, hey, this shot has one person in it. This shot has two people. This is a medium shot. This is a wide shot. You know, oh, we can this do... This is shaky. Yeah, is it shaky? Is there a color balance we can do? It, it's cool that that's there, but I'm the same way I turn all of it off. I don't turn any of it on until I'm like, okay, I got like a, like a rough cut here and now I know, okay, I just need to turn on the stabilizer here and then you click a button and yippee. <laughs> it doesn't need to do it all in the background for me, whatever. So another big feature they introduced was the whole keyword collections feature set, which was something I still use today. Anytime, like at my day job, we just got some new hires that came from a premiere background and like every time we show them the keywording stuff, it's kind of like, whoa. So the keyword collections is a set of features and one of the features is range-based keywording. So like in a traditional NLE, nonlinear editor, let's say you had a clip that had two criteria. Maybe it's like a guy surfing. So it's it falls under the criteria of there's a person in the shot and the criteria of water, you know, cause there's water in the background. Well, now you'd have to duplicate the clip and put it in a bin to have it all sorted and all this stuff. But with Final Cut, you can just label stuff with these keywords and you can just click and drag and say, hey, I just want this middle part of this clip to have this keyword, not the rest of it. And it just does it for you. It's it's so cool because it's very database-like and then you can just search things and click on smart collections that automatically can pull stuff together. And it's just like, even today, you know, 10 years later, super useful features that I still use pretty much every day. Yeah, I love keyword collections. And prior, you mentioned duplicating things, putting them in different bins. You would also create subclips. Subclips. <laughs> oh, and and it, what was annoying about that is once you created a subclip, there was kind of this disassociation with the original clip. So if you wanted to drag out something beyond where the subclip ended, nope, got to go back in the other bin and find where that other clip is and drag out the media again. It was just really rigid. The way that bins work in traditional editing software is very, very rigid and limited and most people would end up doing a lot of string outs and organization on the timeline where you know you'd have two or three hour timeline
timelines with media and they'd put things on different tracks and sure it was kind of organized but compare that to the power of a keyword collection and it's not even close not and even the close. fact that I can just type in and search for birds yeah. boom there's all my shots with birds like it's it's incredible and I look forward to the day again we talked about AI maybe improving some of these things I don't use as much but that is one area where I envision in the future you know it's already already services like photos on on the iPhone and that photos app analyze a lot of the stuff uh google and amazon analyze a lot of this stuff if we can start getting those range-based keywords to be ai driven and then have a keyword editor where we can check on and off the things oh, that we yeah. want and don't want then imagine how much that's going to speed up and final cuts already got this foundation for that i haven't seen anything in resolve premiere avid that really compares you can select markers and give markers a range but it's not as dynamic and quick and searchable and database like as keywords are yeah totally it's interesting that you bring up the ai thing because i guess i haven't spent a lot of time thinking about it but with apple silicon being in the max you know the neural engine that could totally speed up ai things and yeah it will automatically detect you know birds and animals or whatever like i don't know maybe even like mountain formations or something i don't know it could just like it does on the iphone but inside your video editing software yeah that could be be pretty cool. Well, and this all ties back to what we were saying earlier, right? What was one of the problems with having too much footage and too much material? You're not going to be able to watch it all. Like they, they always say, like, oh, a good editor sits and watches everything and, and logs everything. <laughs> Problem is, I'm not a good editor. <laughs> when you've got, yeah, when you've got too many, too much footage and not enough time, you know, Final Cut is your friend because this, these organizational things basically compress that amount of time you need so you can find things faster. And yeah. that and keywords was a huge part of solving that problem. Yeah, absolutely. So then they talk about, well, that was like the organization part. Then they talk about editing, like the main heart of this whole thing. So in like a track-based editor, which is the stuff before Final Cut Pro 10, you know, Final Cut Classic, whatever, like it can be easy to forget relationships between clips. Like if you have a sound effect underneath a video clip and you move the video clip, now the sound effect is just stranded there. Well, the software doesn't know there's a connection there. You may remember at that time, but the next day you'll, you'll be like, oh crap, <laughs> that's... That's not going to where I want it to go in my head, but this whole clip connections thing, this was a new feature for Final Cut Pro 10. It fixes that. So if you do have, let's say a, a little video clip, you have a title connected to that video clip and a sound effect attached to that video clip. You move the video clip and everything just travels with it, which is super handy. I still use that all the time too. And it prevents all those collisions from happening where you may accidentally overwrite stuff and then you accidentally delete something out of the timeline and have to bring it back or you knock something else out. It, it prevents that from happening, those clip connections there. Yeah, and this whole magnetic timeline is, you know, the organization is something that I always say people, I don't know why anybody would resist that. Like anybody wouldn't want that. Everyone wants that. The magnetic timeline for editors who've cut in traditional systems is the thing that they fight against the most because That's they're not what I hear, yeah. sure what what it's doing for them. It, you know, things move, they move something and other things move around it and move with it. And maybe you don't want that sound effect to come with it. And how do you, how do you do that? And you know, they, they're used to like lassoing clips and selecting multiple <laughs> edit points and yeah. doing the ripple edits or opening up the timeline and closing it back up. And they're sort of the master of like organizing all of that. Mm -hmm. But when you have 24, 36 tracks of audio and dozen tracks of video that, goes off your screen and being able to remember all of those connections is time consuming. Yeah. 
and you have to double check it. And my biggest problem in Final Cut 7 and earlier editing software or other applications, because I still use Premiere from time to time and Resolve. Same here is I, I would actually start arguing with producers and clients about whether or not we should do a change late in the process. Because I knew it was going to potentially mess something up with the music or overwrite or I might, you know, accidentally delete something. So they'd be like, can we add a shot or can we delete this shot or can we take a second off of this? And I'd be like, well, you liked this yesterday. I don't understand why you want to make this change. Blah, 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 blah. Ten minutes later, we'd either make the change or wouldn't. Then Final Cut 10... I just make the change. It yeah. doesn't matter. I'm not worried about breaking things. Yeah. And you have an unlimited amount of undos from the time you open the application. That's something I don't know if people know that, but other editing applications would limit you. And Final Cut 10, it's like you can just keep undoing to the point that you opened it. So I never worried. Once I wrapped my head around the magnetic timeline, everything just became about the creative storytelling and that part of my brain in Final Cut 7 that had to think technically and plan six or seven moves ahead like a ninja. Like, I just (laughs) don't think about it anymore. I'm like, yeah, sure. You want to extend that shot? Done. You want to delete that? Gone. It's huge. And yet... It's the controversial thing with Final Cut because people are like, I don't understand what just happened. Um, (laughs) And I should say, this is for older generations of editors who are used to other systems, not kids who are coming from iMovie and have never looked at another editing system. To them, it just makes sense. Of course, this clip comes after this clip, and if I want to reorder, it goes like that. And of course, the title I had there goes with it. Why would it not? That's where I put the title. Mm Mm-hmm. So that to me is encouraging that this new paradigm could really take hold with a lot more people than the older paradigm, which was very technical driven. And I think there's a lot of emotion surrounding 10 years of technical knowledge. Like I spent all this time learning every little thing about Final Cut 7 and they ripped it away from me and this thing doesn't work the same. So who am I? What is my identity? (laughs) Right. People had a real crisis with that. So they did. Uh, yeah. I interviewed people that were like excited about magnetic timeline. You know, like you you move a clip and the audio clip bumps out of the way. There's no tracks that restrict it. And then there's other people like, wait a minute, what are you doing? You know, you're ruining everything. Like, <laughs> I, stop. You know, you can put lipstick on the interface. You can give us keywords, but please don't touch the timeline. That's my domain. That's that's I know that. Why are you changing it? Yeah, I remember like. When I first used it, it maybe confused me for like 10 minutes, but then I was fine. And like, as I started using it more, I was like, oh, this absolutely makes sense. I can move this thing and it doesn't knock things out of sync. If I drag a clip to change the ordering of a clip, the other one just bumps into where the old clip used to be. And it just works. And this is a personal thing of mine. I don't know if everybody loves this, but I like it that when I press undo, it animates backwards what I did so I can actually see the thing moving so I know where, you know, point A to point B, where it actually moved. Because sometimes I'll do something and be like, wait, what did I do? Undo, see it fly across the screen. Oh, that's what I did. So those little touches work really well with how my brain works. (laughs) Yeah, it's visual feedback. Yeah, visual feedback. That is how it is. Like also like when you're, slipping a clip like in older editors you slip it you know you might you'll get your view up in the top like okay where's the in and out point but like in the timeline it's just kind of like a, a box but like in final cut it's like a physical film strip that moves you see the thumbnails move with your mouse cursor to see like what's what's happening what am i actually doing when i d- use this slip tool here and it just makes sense <laughs> yeah it makes you more confident in what you're about to do or what you're doing when you're mm-hmm. doing it or like you said the animating backwards it, yeah 
it really helps you understand your story. And I think it feeds into this design principle behind the original Macintosh, which was this idea that if somebody was over your shoulder watching you on the Mac, and, and same with like the iPad, it's like in the Apple philosophy, right? Oh. That they would understand how to use it based off of watching you use it. Oh. Very true with the iPhone, right? Yeah. Does the iPhone come with the user manual? Now think about a BlackBerry. Blackberries <laughs> came with user manuals. Oh. An iPhone never came with a user manual, but you could watch somebody. Grandma could watch you do a few things, and she can do it too. Oh, yeah. And Final Cut Pro, very much in its DNA uh, with Final Cut Pro 10, had that mentality. Yeah, that's, yeah. To me, that's light years beyond. And if you look at other companies, I don't think they have, you know, this was when I talked to Dave Cerf, who was one of the lead designers on the Magnetic Timeline. This was very much in the design philosophy of what they were trying to achieve. And he said, at other companies, we would never have been given the freedom to get some of those things right. Like, for example, when you want to ripple an endpoint in Final Cut 10 and you drag to the left, it pushes things down the timeline. Now, technically, it's not like you just started things earlier in time, right? Yeah. Like, what should probably technically happen is that everything grows to the right, but it doesn't feel right. Yep. And that that was something that they spent months on getting right. And Apple said, yeah, keep working on it until it's right. Whereas... You know, Premiere, they're like, the gray box is fine. Move on. We need to get the other feature out. (laughs) Yeah. So Pete is wrapping up on stage and he's like, you know, I could talk about this for hours. And someone from the audience yells, yeah, we waited for hours. So, okay. So he's like, okay, Randy Ubelos is going to come out on stage. He's the chief architect of video applications at Apple. And then he brings Randy out on stage. But I did want to circle back and talk about those sponsors for a quick sec that, you know, Apple bought them out, you know, to have this space. And... I get it, but I'm glad they didn't buy out my awesome sponsor and my awesome friends at Linode because without them, I couldn't be doing this podcast. You know, I've been working with them for a while. They are really awesome guys and they got a pretty cool product. So if any of you guys listening need to simplify your cloud infrastructure and cut those bills in half, you can do that with Linux virtual machines by Linode. You can develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. So whether you're developing that personal project or you're managing a larger workload, hey, we all deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions. You want it to be simple and easy and affordable. So here's the cool thing. Just from listening to this podcast, you can get $100 in free credit. There's a link in the show notes. It's linode.com slash computerclan. It's going to be the quickest and easiest $100 you'll ever make in your life. So Linode has data centers around the world with the same simple and consistent pricing regardless of location. So you just choose the one closest to you and you're good to go. And you also receive 24-7, 365 technical support. And guess what? It's given to you by a human, not a robot. So you can actually talk with them and get your problems solved. And you could choose shared and dedicated compute instances, or you can spend that $100 credit on S3 compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, whatever you like. You get $100 of credit if you sign up through the Computer Clan link in the show notes. Plus, you're also supporting the podcast when you do that. So to put it simple, if it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Visit linode.com slash ComputerClan and click on the Create Free Account button to get started, and we'll get you that free credit just for listening to a podcast. Hey, if someone would pay me 100 bucks to listen to a podcast episode, I'd do it. So go ahead and check that out, linode.com slash ComputerClan. Link is in the show notes. All right, so we're back at the Super Meet in Las Vegas at NAB 2011, and Pete Steinauer is just leaving the stage, and Apple's chief architect of video applications, Randy Ubillos, is coming out on stage, and he's going to do a live demo 
a Final Cut Pro 10, which he does disclaim is a beta, and he's like, hopefully it cooperates, which uh, I, th I think it did. So this is where they first show that film strip view in action, which Brad already talked about, where you can just skim through things and find what you're looking for and kind of just select the range you want, kind of like you're selecting text in a document. And that's the first time we see that demoed live. He shows the favorite button, which I love using. You can just highlight something, press F, it puts a little green line there, and it's like, hey, this part of this clip is green. This is a favorite part you like. Now you have it. And it's just such a simple user interface that he shows off. And again, I got links in the show notes if you guys wanna check out the stuff more graphically. And he shows off things like the timeline index, which I love using. It's like a vertical table of contents of your timeline, so to speak. And he does verbally say, there are no tracks. I'm pretty sure people who were watching the event kind of were picking up on that, but now like verbally it's like, there's no tracks. And you know, everyone in that audience is used to editing on a track-based editor. So this is like a big shift for everybody. Like we were talking about the new and old paradigm, the magnetic timeline. It's different. There's a learning curve here, but I totally think it was worth it. Thankfully, I've only been cutting on a track-based editor for like three years before I jumped into Final Cut Pro 10 on day one. So I really didn't have to unlearn anything. <laughs> that was just my uh, lucky situation, I guess. Some people call it the learning wall. Learning, bam! You gotta break through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like that. There we go. Yeah, screw the curve. You gotta, yeah, you gotta break through this wall. But yes, it's not track based per se, but in a way, tracks somewhat kind of come and go as they're needed, especially a little more now that we have newer features like the, the audio rolls and stuff. Those are a little more tracky, but still not as rigid as tracks. And another cool thing uh, Randy demoed was clip syncing based on time code, but also based on waveform, which is pretty sweet. So if you record like with a lower budget setup with a DSLR and a separate audio recorder. Final Cut can sync the good audio from the audio recorder with the scratch crappy audio from the DSLR, sync them together just by looking at the audio waveform. And that was a big deal because I'm pretty freaking sure Final Cut class couldn't do that. I was on Express. I know I couldn't do it on Express, but uh, that was really cool. And speaking of, you know, this is getting ahead, but multicam was not demoed or shown off. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that <laughs> had a lot of people crapping their pants in the audience. That like, did not, <laughs> that did not show off. But there was a way to synchronize audio. Yeah. Um, at that point. And then I, I got to play the soundbite for this one. This one was really cool. He was showing the color matching, which I don't use a lot, but it was a cool technical demo to see how quick it adjusted. And it was also cool to see how fast those color corrections just rendered in the background. So I'm going to play this right here with Randy's demo from the event. So we have this, it's a sunset shot. And the next one is the cars driving away. Be nice if those two match. All I have to do is come up here and choose uh, match color. And this brings up the two up display. And then I just select the clip I want to match to. So if we want to match to the interview shot, I just click. If I want to match to the inside of Randy wraps up his live demo. Richard, from the beginning of the presentation, comes back out on stage, and he's like, well, hey, when does it come out? We're shipping in June. Yeah, that's great. And then he's like, how can you get it? Well, App Store, because this was new on Snow Leopard. The App Store was a new thing on the Mac, and this is the first version of Final Cut to be downloadable from the App Store, so that was a pretty big deal. And then the cost. Because <laughs> like this- What's uh, it gonna cost? Yeah, he was like, how much is it gonna cost? 
$2.99, that got a standing ovation. People were cheering like crazy. It was so affordable. And that was going back to like the first version of Final Cut, you know, it being $9.99 and usable on a Mac as opposed to like a $50,000 system, just making it more affordable and more accessible was part of their mission. And making this $2.99 and just having it as a simple download from the App Store, that was a big deal that made it super accessible to people. Now, who, aside from people who thought we don't want accessibility, which is a silly thing to think, <laughs> you know, any professionals like I don't want people using the same tools as me. I don't want kids using the same <laughs> oh, thing as me. Yeah. It's like get over yourself. You know, are you are you a professional storyteller and editor mm-hmm. or are you a technician pushing buttons? Because right. that shouldn't bug you. But I can feel some sympathy for, say, retailers and third-party sellers. And there were, there's this whole market of people that would go around, you know, selling Apple systems and software to professional production companies. Mm, good point. And that just nuked everything they did. It's like through the App Store, there's no more box. I can't get them a deal on it. I can't make a little cut when I sell, you know, a Mac with with Final Cut on it. So there was this whole kind of side business market that just was blown away by that announcement. And I'm sure they were like, oh, well, I guess I can't do that anymore. Ooh, yeah, I didn't quite think about that perspective. But yeah, that's totally understandable. Things change, things move on. And honestly, it was something Apple had to do but I think this also, this whole 299 App Store announcement had another side effect, which was if you remember when iMovie 08 came out, you would buy iMovie 08 and you could get iMovie 06 with it. It would the install disc would come with it. Oh yeah. And the and iMovie 06 had features that iMovie 08 didn't. And I remember that because I was still on 06 because I wow yeah I didn't really like 08. <laughs> Yeah, iO8 was very much a new application, missing a lot of features, sound familiar. So Randy had this idea that he pitched to the marketing team, which was, well, we should launch Final Cut 7 with Final Cut 10. But how do you distribute Final Cut 7 on the App Store, which is like old code, mm. old software, previously came in a box? How do you release that? You ship them a box? Like there was this whole thing of like, we can't put an old piece of software that wasn't like Final Cut 7 wasn't a self-contained app. There's That's another thing about the App Store is you kind of have to have a bundled app that's all together. And Final Cut 7 was not that. So it really wasn't possible to put Final Cut 7 onto the App Store and allow users to download it. But that was one of the things people hated is that Final Cut 7, aside from the boxes that were already on the shelves, Apple wasn't producing more, shipping more, and it was basically pulled off. And Final Cut Pro 10 pops up on the App Store. And another thing, if you weren't careful, is if you decided to buy it and you wanted to run both, you had to put Final Cut 7 in a folder in your applications folder Otherwise, when you downloaded X, it would overwrite 7. Oh, no. Oh, what? <laughs> so, <laughs> like, a little bit fast forwarding, but, like, there's th- that whole App Store thing. There's a lot tangled up in that announcement that's so exciting, but also, wait a minute. What is this break? <laughs> and it yeah. did break some things. Yeah. And that does kind of segue into the the aftermath and and the negative reactions we'll dive into here in a quick sec. But yeah, ultimately, Apple was like, yeah, we we don't want to do the whole 7 and 10 thing at the same time. You know, that's not the Apple way. They kind of just 
burn the past and move forward in a lot of cases. But uh, so it wasn't necessarily the smoothest transition, which was odd because like they've been through transitions before, like going from OS 9 to OS 10. It, it was like, hey, we got this compatibility mode for you. So your apps work for a couple of years while you transition. Going from PowerPC to Intel. Hey, we got this Rosetta thing. So your PowerPC apps work as things going transition. to Intel to Apple Silicon. Yeah, we have right. Rosetta too. <laughs> there you go. We're going through it right now. But like with Final Cut 7 to 10, I can understand, especially with big companies, lots of infrastructure and investment and everything. And suddenly it's just like, boom, we went to this other thing. It'd be like, wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. And end of life. And we're not supporting it. And oh, when you want to search Apple support for Final Cut Pro questions, all of them get redirected to Final Cut Pro X. Oh, crap. They did that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I, I like the part in your documentary where, where Surf was saying, like, it's like Apple like came in and like burned down my old house, but they built me this cool new mansion with all this cool stuff. And it's like, wow, that's great, but you burned down my house? <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> no, there was, yeah, there's a lot of funny, funny moments in that. Yeah, um, totally. So there's a lot of good and a lot of bad. Let's just say, okay, so now the day is over. It's the next morning. I remember seeing things on Mac rumors from like all these people that were saying all of this bad stuff about it. Like they've never used it. They've never touched it, but like they're saying all these bad things about it. Anything you want to share about the morning after, so to speak, of this aftermath? Well, even the night of. Oh, yeah, So I saw some footage that was like exit interviews of people. And it was really funny to see even the people who were excited were like also really worried about what they didn't see. Hmm. I didn't see Motion. I didn't see Soundtrack Pro. I didn't see DVD Studio Pro. Is there still going to be a Final Cut Studio? Am I still going to be able to use all of these apps I mean, there was this sense that Soundtrack Pro and Color were kind of thrown into Final Cut Pro 10. Like, you can do all these other things as well. I think even Randy alludes to that when he's demoing Color. But the truth is, the Color tools, we talked about the Color board, it wasn't Apple Color, which was a third-party app they bought right. and then updated kind of twice and then abandoned. So there was, there was so much uncertainty about what we didn't see. And I think that when it got to the next morning and people kind of woke up, maybe some of them a bit hungover, (laughs) were like, wait a minute. And the thing that shocks me the most is that competitors like Avid, the day after, you know, Avid CEO takes out an article in Variety and says, Apple's abandoned professional users. Don't worry, Avid's got your back. We're still here. Oh, wow. This is a prosumer, you know, everyone's saying iMovie Pro. Yeah. They're making fun of it. They're, you know, showing that Apple's killed it. And you're right. None of them had actually touched or used the application. They were so emotionally tied up. And you talked about the transitions from other things. Yeah. When OS 10 came out, OS 9 was still available, right? Exactly. And Steve Jobs, finally at one of the events, you might may know exactly which one, but I remember this distinctly of Steve Jobs holding a funeral for yep. Mac OS 9. <laughs> WWDC 2002, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Final Cut Pro 7 deserved a funeral service. Yeah, oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it, it deserved it. You know, this application had been around for 12 years by this point and had made so many people's careers and people loved it so much. And they just pulled the rug out and it's like, we never got resolution. We never got, you know, I was kind of like one of the people maybe torching your house and moving on into the mansion. 
But uh, I can understand why that was so frustrating for Absolutely. users. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I I guess I'm kind of lucky that I wasn't super emotionally invested, but like I can absolutely understand why there would be that visceral reaction to this big change all of a sudden, especially if you've built your career on it. Holy crap. <laughs> Woo, that's heavy, as Marty McFly would say. <laughs> I remember the day it came out distinctly because I just had picked up a brand new 2011 MacBook Pro with Thunderbolt. Yeah. First Mac with Thunderbolt. And I got it. I had ordered it a little bit before, and it shipped on June 21st, 2011. Oh, nice. And I came home, and I opened it up, and I set up the computer, and I hadn't checked the internet or anything, and I thought, wouldn't it be so cool if Final Cut 10 was out today? And it was. I popped open the Mac store and it was there. So I bought it immediately. And then I downloaded it and I was I was very careful. Well, actually, no, I didn't have 7 on it at all at that point. So I installed 7 later because I had all these edits in Final Cut 7 and I thought, okay, previously, every time they updated Final Cut Pro, you could open up your FCP project in the new version and it would just update it. And so I'm like, will it open Final Cut 7 projects? <laughs> nope. Nope. It it wouldn't it didn't see it it didn't recognize it it didn't have any way of opening it i could import imovie projects <laughs> right right so that, that was great you know <laughs> that made me feel great it's like oh okay so if i'd been cutting an imovie this whole time i could open that up in final cut pro x but i can't open up my final cut 7 projects mm-hmm. and i was more sad that i had to install the old software on my computer than i was oh. of jumping over to x because I, I had to get projects done. Now, sometime after, in the fall, they released an XML for Final Cut Pro 10, which wasn't there in the beginning. And as part of that, there was a company called Intelligent Assistance that released a 7.2x application that would take XML from 7 and import it into 10. It would get your edits across, but retiming and effects and things did not translate over very well. Right. So it was kind of like uh, if you're forced to kind of upgrade your project to 10, you can do it. But it really left me in a like a spot where I just had to finish everything in Final Cut 7. And then at the end of 2011, going into 2012, I was ready to leap, to, to just fully switch over to, to Final Cut 10. Mm-hmm. But that was six months of sort of going between the two, learning the new thing while working actively in Final Cut 7 and trying to wrap my head around this new thing. What were like some of the other nice features that were missing from the initial version of Final Cut Pro 10? Like, you know, multicam. Yeah, no, it's... It's, it's, yeah, multicam's the biggest one, right? It's one of those funny things that you go from seven, you skip eight, you skip nine, <laughs> and then you come out with 10, and 10 has some new features that are really cool. And we've talked about some of those that were demoed, like keywords, and a whole lot of things that you've relied on that were gone, just not there. Yeah. And you're like, well, why did you release this if you didn't have these core features in? And so I've got a little short list of missing features, which is, like you said, multicam, XML, which I talked about. They finally did that. That was one of the first things in 10.0.1. XML was the kind of the main feature release. You couldn't use broadcast monitoring. You talked about color sync earlier, which is cool, but professionals buy (laughs) $50,000 reference monitors. Yeah. 
you can't use it with Final Cut 10. That's that was weird. One that I don't care about, but at the time people felt very weird about not having it was a source viewer was what it was called and they had a source and canvas viewer in Final Cut 7. You don't need it in 10 to yeah, be honest. I don't use it and in 10. they did eventually come out with the event viewer. Mm-hmm. But I never turn it on, ever. I turned it on, and I was like, oh, I'm wasting screen space. Turn it off. Yeah, you don't need it. <laughs> yeah, because of the film strips and because of skimming, it's really, like, redundant. Mm-hmm. And then another one was that I know affected some friends of mine in the professional workspaces. You couldn't output multi-track QuickTimes. Mm. So you used to be able to, like, you know, you would want the English audio, and the you might want an effects and music mix so it could be dubbed in foreign languages or you'd want the French or Spanish languages tracks and they'd all be on separate tracks in Final Cut 7 it was cumbersome but you could take all those tracks and assign them on your in your export to go to specific tracks in a multi-track QuickTime. Final Cut 10.0 didn't let you do that. It also meant that you didn't have a good way of because there was no XML and there was no multi-track output you didn't have a good way to go into any sort of audio mixing app like Pro Tools or Logic. You couldn't take anything from Final Cut and send it there and do a professional audio mix. This combined with the emotion of Apple abandoning 7, I think really played into at least half or more of Final Cut 7 users just not even giving Final Cut 10 a try. Yeah. And just abandoning it completely. Most of them through 2011 to 2012, stayed on Final Cut 7. And then a lot of professional editors were lured away to Adobe Premiere because uh, Adobe Premiere had a few years before that upgraded to a pro version. But honestly, it was missing some features too in 2011 that by 2012, they got up to speed at the same time that 10 was getting up to speed. But because everyone had stopped paying attention to Final Cut 10 and honestly, we're hoping Apple just got rid of it or there was a lot of people who would write into Apple saying, bring back Final Cut 7, just bring it back or make the source code available. Like... (laughs) Don't abandon us. Don't leave us in the lurch. We want to use this thing. All of those people, then they could trade in their Final Cut studio boxes and get 50% off of Adobe Premiere. Oh, yeah. So Adobe and the Creative Suite at that time. It was before the Creative Cloud. And the Adobe got this, you know, a ton of people to go over because of that. That was the backlash. Yep. And sure, there was a lot of people who weren't paying attention to any of that, that weren't video professionals that tried Final Cut 10 out immediately and thought this is a cool thing and I'm going to use this. But anybody working professionally, like I bet a lot on Final Cut 10 because I believed that the keywords and smart collections and the, the magnetic timeline were the future of editing. And I had this choice in my mind to, you know, switch over to Premiere or stick with Final Cut 10. And I felt strongly that if I stuck with Final Cut 10, I would have a few years where it'd be really rough because I'd be alone. (laughs) But eventually good ideas win the day and eventually people would start coming around to it. And a decade later, I can say I'm really, really glad that I stuck with Final Cut 10 because it brought my career into position that if I was one of the herd with Premiere, I'd be just another person. But betting on Final Cut 10 has introduced me to so many cool people It's got me in touch with people at Apple, and it's got me in touch with a great Final Cut community around the world. It got me in touch with you. Yeah. 
And so I'm glad I bet on that. I got a little bit ahead of myself, but I did also want to talk about some of the weird things about 10.0 before we wrap this up completely. Ooh, yes. Fun glitches and whatnot. Yeah. Is there anything you remember from first opening up the application? So... I will say, going off of what you said, which was very beautifully put, by the way, I was a 10.0 day one user as well. And in my case, I never went back to, I like never opened up Final Cut Express ever since I got 10 installed. I just went with it. But I do remember, like one quirk I had to get over was like, you couldn't really like save your project anywhere. It just kind of like put it like in your home directory or whatever. It was like a weird thing like that. And the other thing I remember happening was if I had a title, it would like default back to the regular font setting like when you reopen the thing the next day. <laughs> that Those are the two I remember. It was a long time ago, but what do you have? <laughs> I got a list. Those, those two things are on it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Starting with project and event libraries before we had a unified library model. Event libraries is where your media was collected. There'd be either video clips, audio clips, graphics, and that by default, those would be saved in your movies folder. You could, however, save them on an external hard drive, but they had to be on the root level. And when you wanted to edit your material from your event library, you had to then create a project in the project library. And the project library was just timelines. It was kind of cool because it actually had a film strip but you could skim across it, which was really neat. But you'd open that up and it'd be in the timeline area and you'd open that up and it'd fill up, you know, your edit would be live in the timeline. And then you could go back and you could open up other projects, which was really, really confusing because before we were used to a project that contained bins with your media and sequences, which is where you would edit. So wrapping your head around that was kind of confusing. And initially the events and project libraries couldn't live on shared storage, although they fixed that with an update, but you could put them on external hard drives. Now the biggest annoying thing about it is Final Cut would launch and it would see whatever hard drives you had connected and whatever was in your movies folder, and it would load yep. all your events and project libraries. Take forever. <laughs> it take forever, and also it was a little awkward if you say you were working with one client that didn't know you were working with another client. So the way around this was you could create a folder and then move your events and project libraries into another folder and hide them, as it were. Hide them from the all-seeing eye of the software. Which then I think a company called Arctic Whiteness like had a, a library manager, which would just... You could open that up and then click on the check the ones you wanted to show and the ones you didn't want to show and it would automate that a little bit. But it was pretty silly to say the least that we had to to do it that way. Anyway, let's uh, let's blaze through a bunch of these because these are fun. <laughs> so weird things, weird things or design things that were kind of odd Bring that it. mostly have been fixed in Final Cut fonts. Like you said, when you were making a title and then you would close Final Cut and then you'd reopen Final Cut, it would reset to a default font. That was super annoying. When you selected a range on your film strip and then you clicked on the next clip, that range would disappear. Ooh, I didn't have that happen, but that sounds catastrophic. <laughs> well, that that was not like that wasn't a bug. That was just how it worked. Oh my gosh! So if you wanted to save a select in and out range, the workaround was to make a keyword or a favorite before you clicked off of it. But if you accidentally clicked on another clip, your range went away, and you couldn't select multiple ranges like you could late in later versions. Okay, the range selection went away. I thought you meant like the portion of the clip vanished. But yes, I see. I see what no, you're no, saying. No, 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 no. It wasn't. Yep. No, no, it wasn't. 
Yes, it wasn't that scary. Yes. It was just the selection. Yeah, would that disappear. I took that for granted just now because it's like I use that all the time. You make the range, you click on something else, it saves the range, it just like grays it out or whatever. But yeah, you're right. When you clicked off of it, the in and out point disappeared. Just, Holy and crap. And now what's cool is you can actually, if you hit hold down command, you can select another range and another range and another range, which is really cool. You couldn't do that on in 10.0. I mentioned that they had the import from iMovie mm-hmm. in the UI in the browser, which was just kind of a slap in the face for everyone that <laughs> said iMovie Pro. You're like, well, uh, fine. <laughs> no relink media. Uh, I remember that being a thing. No. Couldn't relink media. No custom start time code. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they they had a unified window layout, which led a lot of people to believe that you couldn't spread things to two monitors, mm. which I think you could. You could, if you had a second monitor hooked up, you could send your viewer over there. I think but, that was in 10.0, yeah. Yeah, but the unified uh, interface where it was just a single window, which was a very big thing with Lion apps for Final Cut, for Apple, that annoyed people because they would have all their own custom layouts in Final Cut 7. And a lot of people still do that in Adobe Premiere, that they put their panels wherever they want. I personally am I appreciate somebody taking a lot of time to think about the simplest way to design the interface. And the interface is customizable enough, especially now where you can turn off the timeline when you don't use it and you're just you know organizing media. So I don't, eh, whatever. But it did throw people off. So you couldn't reorder color corrections. There were no audio rolls. So I mentioned that with the multi-track output. Initially, you couldn't say, tell something. Now you can tell something. It's music or it's effects or you can give it any custom role you want. And that allows you to kind of channel audio through in a unique way. You can reorder your clips based off of rolls. It's really cool. I love showing, uh, especially audio, people who do recording of audio. I love showing them how their audio comes in from the recorder with with the IXML data that'll actually label sub rolls. <laughs> That's and an I awesome have all feature. that access. You had a global paste and remove copy and remove effects. So it was like, oh, I could copy effects and paste them onto another clip, but it was every effect. Yeah, no pick and choose. So no pick yeah. and choose. And then they did paste attributes, but then it was funny. They it took them a while to do remove attributes. <laughs> like you had that's right. Paste effects, remove effects, and paste attributes, but no remove attributes. It was like, I don't know why that took so long, but uh, that was funny. Compound clips, initially, you could create them in the timeline, but they wouldn't be in your effects browser. Oh, yeah. Or, sorry, you're the, not the, effects the me- browser. They wouldn't be mm-hmm. in your browser and the events. So they, they changed that eventually where compound clips could actually live in the events. And I remember when that happened, a lot of people changed their workflow to not have projects in the project library, but instead they would do their edits in the compound clip. So that way the compound clip could live inside the event and they could just move that whole folder over and the edit would go with it. It was a, way, it was a hacky way of getting your edits to be in your, your event browser and be more contained instead of this weird separation. And then you couldn't export a range from the timeline. That was super weird. So I remember if I wanted to just send a part of an edit, I'd either have to export the whole thing and then trim it down later, or I'd have to duplicate the timeline and then cut out the parts I didn't want to share. So those were the main ones that right off the bat in the first couple months of using it, I thought, this is weird, this is weird, this is weird. 
And I feel like most of those were addressed by the 10.0.3 release, which was a big one, and the 10.0.6 release. We finally got our multicam. We even got like red raw support in 10.0.6. And by 10.0.6, I felt like the app was really ready for prime time, which was in 2012. And that's when I was like, people need to start looking at this again. But it took a lot longer for people to look at it again. I felt, I felt like the first time people really, really took a serious look at Final Cut was in 2016 with 10.3 when they introduced the new user interface Mm -hmm. and the new audio roles. They called it the Magnetic Timeline 2. And then a year later, we got our color wheels and curves in 10.4. I love them. And that's when I started to see people say hey should we look at final cut again (laughs) but that you know that was you know five six years later and meanwhile i had done you know five or six feature films in final right and loving (laughs) it exactly (laughs) so i don't necessarily miss the way the old ui looked i think it looks a lot prettier and sleeker now i agree it definitely matured with those updates and there's a lot of people using it now. It's really big for like YouTubers, people on smaller budgets. Like it's just a great application to have. Uh, so many people, even like um, that big uh, Despacito, you know, the, the big uh, music video on YouTube that was cut in Final Cut Pro, like five billion views or however many it has now. <laughs> it's, it's some insane number of views. Yeah, I know we've been going on for a while, so I'll keep it quick. Is the plugin ecosystem for Final Cut like it unlocked a whole like. App Store on the iPhone, plugins for Final Cut, like it opened up this huge ecosystem of third-party solutions for Final Cut Pro 10. It's been 10 years. So where are we at with Final Cut? Where do we see it going? You mentioned a lot of YouTubers on it. Mm-hmm. I've seen in the last couple of years a lot more interest from feature film and television editors. Oh, good. Uh, I've seen a, a lot more, you know, a, a big opportunity. There's actually a quote that I wanted to read to you that I came across recently. So I was watching this video that you can find on YouTube that's about the digital revolution and they interviewed George Lucas. And he said, there's a social drag on how fast you can take an idea and turn it into a reality that actually is part of the social system. It takes about 10 years for people to kind of get their heads around it from the point where it's introduced to the point where they accept it. 10 years, huh? <laughs> and you know, think about the the think about the time frame he's referring to, which is Attack of the Clones comes out in 2002 and it was shot the first feature major feature film shot digitally. And by 2012, the Ari Alexa and the Red cameras are finally starting to be used in Hollywood movies. Even when Red was introduced in like the 2007 to 2009 period, there was a lot of apprehension and people still shot on film, but around 2012, there was like a tipping point and nearly everything was shot digitally. And for a while, everything was until a few filmmakers were like, we have to stick to film, you know, Christopher Nolan and others that were like, I have to shoot on film. But those are the exceptions now. Everything is shot digitally. Yeah. In the case of Final Cut 10, which is this huge paradigm shift for a lot of people, fast forward to just a job I was on a month ago, uh, working with about 40 or 50 editors and training 60% of them had never touched Final Cut 10 before. Oh. And some of them were Avid editors who'd been editing on Avid for 20 to 30 years. And it was really interesting to see how they reacted to it. And after two or three weeks of using Final Cut 10, a lot of them were saying, I want to use this. Some of them were saying, I don't want to go back to Avid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 
So that's saying I was, and and when I asked about it, because as somebody who felt very alone for ten years, I was like, well, why now? Why are you? You know, the answer I got back is not that all of them thought that Final Cut was iMovie Pro and they didn't want to use it and all that negative backlash. A lot of them, it's like nobody was paying me to use Final Cut Ten. They'll pay me to use Avid. They'll pay me to use Premiere. They're not paying me to use Final Cut. I couldn't take the time to go learn this other application when I had paying jobs and these other systems. And this was a unique uh, situation where we had a week of training just in Final Cut Pro 10 for these editors. So I personally think there's a huge opportunity for Apple to maybe push some of their stuff uh, that they're making for Apple TV Plus and and even go to Hollywood and train editors out in Hollywood on other projects and then create some sort of incentive because oh. based on the reaction we had on, on this, this project and seeing how these LA editors reacted to it and were willing to accept it and even find they were cutting faster and enjoying it. It took them a couple of weeks to get up to speed. To me, that's that's like, okay, maybe we're finally at that point. Yeah. Uh, you know, circling back to your Richard Townhill uh, presenting Final Cut, he does have a quote where he says, this is the platform for the next 10 years. Here we are. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's been 10 years. Is Apple going to abandon Final Cut again? I think that's the, one of the big concerns that people have is, hey, they did it before. Are they going to kill this version? We just found out about it. We just, you know, this was one of the things that people were saying to me. And my response to that is, no, I don't think we're in the same boat. And the reason why... I don't think we're in the same boat is even though features have been a little bit slow in the last couple of years, we did have them like Apple stopped and rewrote Final Cut, the graphics side of it to be fully supported of metal. And when they announced the Mac Pro in 2019, they demoed Final Cut Pro and they said it is the example for benchmarks and how fast metal can run. And then 2020, um, they introduced Apple Silicon yep. and then they show Final Cut Pro running in apple silicon exactly and from what i understand in both those cases this wasn't a simple like let's just port it over there was intense rewriting in the application to the point that uh, from my understanding if you download final cut pro today you're actually getting two versions of the app in the bundle one is the apple silicon version and the other is the intel version and the fact that they took the time to update it whereas going back to the beginning final cut 7 wasn't 64-bit. Final Cut 7 didn't support all these Snow Leopard technologies. They didn't update and rewrite Final Cut 7 to support the new system. However, Final Cut 10, which now is called Final Cut Pro again, they dropped the, I don't know if you noticed that, but the 10. when they updated to 10.5, they dropped the X. Mm-hmm. Um, that has, has been, you know, has been updated to run on all of Apple's new technology moving forward. So, there's no reason to do that if you're just going to kill the app in a year or two. Right. Yeah, I think the future's looking really good, and that whole George Lucas thing makes sense. Like, on average, it takes 10 years for it to become, like, socially acceptable, so to speak. And here we are now on the 10th anniversary of Final Cut Pro Ten. Lots of 10s, and yeah, future's looking pretty freaking good. Well, Brad, thank you so very much for helping me out today. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, I 
love the conversation. I feel like compared to the last chat we did, we covered a more organized ground. I was going to say, we, we took a lot of history here, too, and shoved it into, like, this short time frame. So that was impressive. Uh, I think we both deserve a pat on the back for that. <laughs> so Me trying to get you off the path a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just a secondary storyline, you know? We talked about Off the Tracks quite a bit, uh, your documentary. I just want to say, everybody, uh, I've watched it like four times. It's super freaking good. We have links in the show notes. Go check out Off the Tracks. You'll love it. And feel free to subscribe and follow Apple Keynote Chronicles here because, hey, if you're here, you're a new viewer, but you like Apple and Steve Jobs and all that kind of history stuff, we're going to be talking about a lot more of that stuff. Feel free to check out our past episodes. And we're resuming our normal timeline real soon. Our next keynote we're covering is where Steve Jobs introduces the PowerPC G3 chip and the first Power Mac G3, as well as the all-new Apple Store where they first start doing build-to-order configurations, which is stuff we always use today, but that wasn't a thing back then, so lots of cool stuff to cover on Apple Keynote Chronicles, so subscribe and stay tuned for more of that, and as Steve Jobs would say, it's going to be insanely great. Brad, anything else you'd like to add in? Whatever you do with video, I'm sure a lot of people use video in ways they didn't know they were going to 10 years ago. Go out and make a movie yeah. and use Final Cut. Yes. you like it. Yeah, absolutely. Use Final Cut Pro. Absolutely. So guys, thanks for tuning in. And one more huge shout out to our Linode guys, our awesome friends at Linode. You can feel free to get the $100 free credit with linode.com slash computerclan. You can check out the link in the description or in the show notes. Hey, we say show notes on podcasts, I guess. <laughs> and another huge shout out to Brad for being my awesome guest co-host for today. We'll see you on a future episode of Apple Keynote Chronicles. Thanks for sticking with us. Catch the crazy and pass it on. Bye.